0: We are back for episode four of parkour history with Max Henry on the last episode, we were talking about Raymond bell. Make sure you, you know, you can listen to some of these episodes out of order and it'd probably be all right, but it's best to listen to them in order because they definitely build on each other. And that was an amazing story. One of my favorite nodes, but we're moving on and kind of adjacent to Raymond bell. You could say to another thread that, you know, forms the cable that it becomes parkour and, um, this one is sort of the entertainment industry, how it's developed, stunts, and well, actually, how would you describe it, Max?
1: I, I think you nailed it. It's, uh, it was really interesting to me, both talking with uh, Sebastian and hearing some of the founders talk a little bit more about their thoughts when parkour was kind of being formalized in the 80s and 90s. It was really fascinating that entertainment and anime ended up becoming an actual contributing factor to their practice and we wanted to explore that a little bit here and I think you really can trace it back to the 1920s mm. and it is kind of it's adjacent both to George Hubert's story and it's also adjacent to uh, Raymond Bell's mm. and it kind of starts around the same time in the early 1920s post-World War One that Georges Hubert, if you remember, decided to leave the French military. He was disillusioned by all of the savagery that he'd witnessed in World War I and wanted to focus on building a culture around his method in France. And that's also when he uh, started the La Palestra. And you see kind of a similar cultural movement happening in the U.S. It wasn't as severe because obviously World War I didn't take place on American soil, But around that same time, you get the development of Hollywood and the Western film industry. And it starts out relatively slow. These are the days of the silent picture. Mm -hmm. And people didn't really know what to make of the medium at first. And old film is really, really cool. It's so experimental and it's really fascinating now to look at an industry where It's just churning out (laughs) billions and billions of dollars and seeing it as this tiny thing like parkour where you had all these personalities who were, you know, putting their love of the craft and figuring out what stories to tell. Uh, One of the most popular stories or attractions in early cinema ended up being slapstick comedy and also kind of early stunts, you could call it. And these were actors like Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and Charlie Chaplin who had a physical presence to their storytelling. Uh, one of the most famous scenes probably is the Harold Lloyd scene where he's hanging off of a clock uh, on top of a skyscraper and you know has to climb and you get that gut-wrenching free solo kind of experience <laughs> as the viewer. And you can only imagine what it must have been like then. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this story, but one of the first moving pictures that was ever shown to an audience was a train coming basically toward the viewer on screen and people ran, got out of their chairs and ran out of the way because their (laughs) brains didn't understand how to process it as a visual medium. Right. So it was really, really interesting to me that one of the first attractions in Western cinema was this focus not only on dance, but also on things that now we'd recognize as stunts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to start there because it ties into a couple things The first thing to me that I find really fascinating, this is the 1920s again. As this medium of film is developing, there's also a huge change in the way that cities are being built, particularly in the United States. So New York and LA, they've run out of space, New York in particular, and everybody starts building vertically. You get the materials, the engineering know-how, and the funding and motivation to start building skyscrapers. And there's an amazing, amazing piece I highly encourage anyone listening to check out called Gizmo. It's from 1977, and it's about wacky inventions, but they have a few minutes towards uh, toward the beginning. They've got a segment on how people interacted with skyscrapers when they were first being built and you've seen I'm sure the photos of you know the steel workers who were on the I-beams and Empire State Building eating their lunch and mm-hmm. balancing 50 to 100 stories up in the air and what was cool to me is they weren't unique in mm. that there was this fascination in general with skyscrapers suddenly appearing and then all of a sudden people appeared to challenge this new vertical realm. It was very much in the spirit of mountaineering, which had become really popular in like the 1880s and 1890s and started to capture the imagination. And you got a really interesting mix of people who basically were doing gashwa <laughs> on these
0: skyscrapers. Goshwa for the for the uneducated. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a deep cut, as Callum likes to put it. Goshwa is a, a sort of satirical term that was come up with by dylan and i or dylan a long time ago <laughs> dylan baker it's getting on high things standing hanging and walking around or something it's an acronym yeah, for that going on, yeah going getting, on
1: high stuff standing hanging and walking around yeah. or something <laughs> but basically you had that like the viral videos of mustang wanted and james kingston you had that happening in the 1920s mm. so we're talking a hundred years ago or a little bit less in some cases, people were circus performers, were doing handstands on the edges of buildings. People were unicycling on the edges of buildings. It was the exact Just same. Just like down got the airboard or whatever. Yeah, it was the exact same thing. Not much thing. has changed. Yeah. Not much has changed. And when I saw these clips on Gizmo, that, that uh, film that you can find on YouTube as well, it was really funny and also really mind-blowing because it was almost like this ancient... Aliens civilization moment of like, whoa, we've been here before. Why, (laughs) how, how did we not get further along? Mm. Uh, And that is something that I know we want to explore a little bit in this episode, but um, just to kind of continue with that context, we have skyscrapers coming up. The city is changing dramatically. Urbanization is huge. People are moving at a much, much faster rate into the cities And you're also, with the boom of the entertainment industry, seeing things like circus, uh, performing live or on film, these are becoming viable ways to survive and ways to live. So, People who are athletically talented and have a head for heights or, you know, having a mind that's geared toward entertainment, mm. suddenly they have an outlet for that where they don't have to work on Ma and Pa's farm back in Iowa. Mm. They're able to move to New York or to Los Angeles and start to tap into those skills. And you see these talent hotbeds developing. And that is kind of the churning mass that the Buster Keatons and the Harold Lloyds and the Charlie Chaplins were coming out of in the art imitating life sense and i'm not sure if it was uh i believe it was it was the case that the actual acts of people scaling these skyscrapers because people were free soloing a lot of these buildings as well Mm. Um, especially in new york i don't know if those inspired the film version or vice versa they happened pretty concurrently i'd i'd guess probably that people were doing it first and then mm-hmm. you you had it in films. Yeah. Often what I notice in film is like, it happens in real life.
0: Like, you know, you take parkour as a perfect example. Parkour is a thing. Casino Royale makes it bigger than mm-hmm. ever before. And then eventually reality catches up and something like what you saw in Casino Royale or other crazy films happens or in a video game, you know, these things start to actually occur. Totally. So then... Yeah, you know, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing, but ultimately, I think th- it's rooted in in reality where where these people were actually doing these things. And Alion Robert is another kind of node that kind of held this candle, not, you know, in the middle of these generations. Now we are seeing him even pass it further down. There's like Leo Urban and yeah, Alexis. The, Alexis, and some of these guys are, there's some more skyscraper. It's starting, I don't know if it's making a resurgence just for a few people doing it, but. You know, if with the gosh what the Mustang wanted, we are seeing lots of engagement with these tall buildings again. And
1: yeah, and that's, that's kind of where this story of parkour starts for me and why I even thought it was worth including this in parkour because something we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode, the kind of difference between stunts and parkour, whether or not these entertainers were doing proto-parkour, mm. right? They were starting to look at the environment around them in a creative way And they were finding challenges in an environment that wasn't made to challenge them. Mm. And that is parkour. So the people in the 1920s that were looking at these buildings and seeing opportunity there to climb in this case, that is kind of the foundational building block, mental building block for creating parkour. And in the early 1940s, I think we see this taken a step further uh with a young man named john Ciampa from brooklyn mm. and i'm so so grateful i actually got to so john Ciampa. you may have seen videos of i think it's called 1920s parkour or you know <laughs> old parkour in new york it's like
0: the famous shots of this dude you know right, jumping off a train into water swinging on a tree like really high up, doing like climbing a tree really fast, throwing himself or descending down.
1: Yeah, he's like, cl- like stemming runs. in between a wall with a like, little kid on his yeah, back.
0: Yeah. Doing, um, you know, a wall run um, mm-hmm. up an a old wall. You know, it's all black and white. There's like him balancing on kind of a spiky fence. There's, yeah. There's some of the more iconic clips that come from that video yeah and, and that, it's not all it's like 90 percent or 80 percent him right and there's so the only clip i believe
1: that's not him that's in the youtube video that's out yeah. that's gone viral a few times is the one uh jumping into water that was okay, a yeah. stuntman from a film mm. the rest is john siampa and that actually is all from this piece that paramount pictures did on him in 1942 to promote uh film uh tarzan in new york mm. so john siampa is a really really cool character in the kind of history and development of parkour Um, and i was lucky enough to get to talk with his grandson who grew up two towns from me on long island (laughs) unbeknownst to myself i was going on facebook and i found this great facebook page with some amazing archived footage that john Ciampa's son and grandson have put together and i highly encourage you to check it out as well it's um i think it's brooklyn tarzan is the name of the facebook page it's wild because I had seen this, you know, old school parkour or parkour in the 1920s, black and white mm-hmm. video. And it is cool, but it's kind of like when you watch Jackie Chan, it's things that you could imagine any athletic person who, for whatever reason, needed to move through the environment, they would do some of those basic moves, right? Like dropping kind of in a lachey, from a vertical tree branch to another tree branch, mm-hmm. doing a little wall pop that was like nine feet. I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. cool. That's not, you don't yeah. really need parkour technique to do that if you're, if you're athletic. Mm-hmm. And then I went into these archived videos and mm-hmm. oh my goodness, <laughs> it is insane. He, I nerded out so hard. There are shots of him doing plyos on these like small, probably two by four wooden I-beams behind, like wooden scaffolding. And he goes up them super, super quick, probably two and a half or three stories. And then he's doing like seven or eight foot plyos on the tops of these wooden I-beams and like ends in precision, drops back down and descends down the (laughs) other side. There's another shot of him in the same tree and he's doing 360 underbars to re-grab. He's doing like eight or nine foot laches in between tree branches It's legitimately technical <laughs> parkour movement. Like he does one lache precision in a tree from tree branch to tree branch. Mm. And that to me is like cool. You're you are <laughs> yeah. doing parkour movements at yeah. this point. Yeah. 100%. So I'm like going through these videos and you can't you can't watch those videos and say, "Oh, that guy just kind of was athletic and developed <laughs> these skills." Like he obviously had to train this skill set. And I found out from his grandson that John Ciampa grew up in Brooklyn. He was obsessed with Tarzan films growing up. Douglas Fairbanks, like the original mm. Tarzan, I believe. And he really loved those films. So he grew up kind of watching the 1920s stunt films and decided, yeah, that's totally what I want to do. And in this, we see an echo of the Yamakazi again later. <laughs> and he and went out.
0: every practitioner's <laughs> it's like, very origin true. story, which is... Yeah, I saw a parkour I mean, it's literally a meme in our culture. It was just like, yeah, it's typical. I saw the parkour video. I wanted to
1: do it. I wanted to do it. And he saw Tarzan and he said, you know, I'm going to do that in real life. And he went out and as a kid, he'd just play in these trees in Brooklyn. And I guess they had trees in Brooklyn back then, which is its own cool (laughs) fact. But his friends gradually stopped and he just kept doing it and kept doing it. And by the time that he was like 19 or 20, he was discovered by paramount pictures who wanted to do this feature on him to help promote their Tarzan in New York adventure video uh, adventure film. And that is where all of that black and white footage Hmm. stems from. And you can watch the whole video. Most of it's covered in that viral clip, but there are a few other really cool clips that aren't. uh, And it is on YouTube and in a couple other places online. And we can find that and link it in the description as well. But he, developed this way of moving and interacting with the environment that at first i didn't want to believe was reminiscent of parkour Mm. and it really really was it's wild Mm. and as he does this he gets to the point where like many of us in parkour he needs to move out make a little bit of money start his life and he goes into circus so he tries stunts he is somewhat successful in stunts, but at this time, it's like the late 1940s, the stunt industry is moving on a little bit from the slapstick comedy and kind of gut-wrenching physical stunt work of the Buster Keatons and the Harold Lloyds. And they're moving more toward like spaghetti westerns, horseback riding, crazy gun tricks, driving cars around, that different type of stunts that audiences hadn't seen before, and that audiences at the time were starting to engage with a little bit more effectively in the eyes of Hollywood. So Sampa's skill set, while it was built off of this original Hollywood in the 1920s, didn't really apply to stunts as well when he was trying to make it in the 40s and the 50s. And you also have to keep in mind 1950s America, very different place than 1920s, the roaring 20s in America. So culturally, there's also a difference there. And Siempa ends up in the circus. And I really, really like this part of his story mm. because in the circus, he's hanging out with circus people. They're hand balancers. They have jugglers. Fi- you know, They have all these specific skills. Some of them are ex-gymnasts or gymnasts, acrobats. And he... Is something else mm-hmm. he's just this unique anomaly <laughs> of movement and listening to or reading some of the descriptions in newspapers of siampa in these acts it is really really crazy again because you get this wild kind of flash to flash forward to the Yamakazi, mm. where reviewers and people who are watching don't know what to do mm. they they have these expectations for what they're going to see in a circus performance. And then there's just this wild Tarzan guy <laughs> jumping around and taking big drops <laughs> and swinging on stuff and like, what is going on? <laughs> uh. <laughs> and I think as a parkour practitioner, you know, that, that hits really, really hard for us. And that to me was this amazing extra little tidbit that, uh, added some depth to Sampa as a legitimate kind of contender to be in this story of parkour's development. Mm. Uh, I will say also that it was very cool talking with his grandson online. Um, Both Sampa's son and grandson are aware of parkour and they get such a kick out of like watching parkour videos. So the grandson in particular, he'd like said he'd watched parkour videos before. Mm -hmm. He thought it was really cool that people in parkour respected and were kind of reviving some of the things that his granddad had done. Mm. And they were just really stoked to see uh, his grandfather's legacy being kind of picked up by our community because after he'd gotten out of the circus, you know, he'd kind of tried to make money and he'd done a good job, but it was one of those things where he was constantly living a little bit hand to fist, it seems like. Mm -hmm. And he was also really passionate as a fisherman. So he did spearfishing. He would go do like free diving. Um, He ended up inventing and patenting a spearfishing gun that could be used underwater. So he was this really diverse human with a lot of interests physically but nothing ever really took off in Mm. the same way that it did for a lot of the other stuntmen in the 20s for instance so he never had his hollywood multi-million dollar deal moment Mm. and it's easy to see a george habert-esque situation with with his legacy as well where it just the world wasn't ready for what he had at the time Mm -hmm. and it's only now in some ways that we're starting to look at what he brought to the table and realize how ahead of the time he may have been in a movement context. And that's really, really cool.
0: Yeah, no, it's powerful. Do you, do you know where, you know, obviously you picked up this thread of John Sampa and I know I'm aware of him. We all, even if we don't know, you know, his name, we've sort of many of our generation have seen that video and, and sort of been inspired by it. Is there other direct, um, connections that you've discovered between him and you know founding practitioners or other people that have picked it up or is it just kind of like been out there you know waiting for anyone to uncover it
1: yeah so i think he's kind of like his development if we're looking at the growth of parkour as this Mm -hmm. evolutionary tree it's almost like this vestigial branch yeah that (laughs) you know he he started doing this thing and as far as i know I'm, i'm i could be totally wrong and we could get a message from. You know, uh, Jan or <laughs> one of the Yamakazi it, after this episode, saying, "Oh no, we totally were aware of John Ciampa, but I hadn't heard. I haven't heard that from any of them." And what I will say though is, we know that while the influence of early Western cinema wasn't as foundational for the founding group of parkour practitioners, what was really foundational is kind of what comes after that in the stunt industry. So John Sampa, the way that his career kind of ended in stunts and in the circus and entertainment, it was pretty representative of what was happening in Western cinema at the time. Again, there's that move away from a lot of these more environmental stunts, mm-hmm. I guess you could say people interacting with their environment, just with their bodies. And there is a move toward these things like the cars and the spaghetti yeah. Westerns and guns and there's a lull yeah, but for several would, decades. You could say
0: maybe he, he, I mean, he obviously helped champion and pioneer some of the very earliest stunt work in the physical realm and in, in things that you can see related into parkour. And then we might have lost that thread a little bit, but it gets picked up where he left it off, essentially, when, um, which we'll get into in the next episode Yeah, um, with, you know, the next set of films that kind of revive it again in the entertainment industry.
1: Yeah. I think that's the cool thing about, about the way that this story goes, right? Is you have this lull in the West and people don't kind of realize what they're missing out on. And then all of a sudden after a few decades, things start to get stale again and Hollywood producers are looking for the next big hit. And all of a sudden they realize, Hmm, these Kung Fu films coming out of (laughs) hong kong they seem to be playing pretty well with western audiences and that is when you get what eventually brings us to bruce lee and jackie chan who were direct Mm -hmm. influences on the founders both in terms of their philosophy their approach to movement and training and obviously some of the movements themselves and that's going to be something that we'll touch on next episode but before we kick into that yeah I think it's it's really important to also address the question that you had, which is kind of where does John Ciampa, who's sort of the, the pinnacle, I would say, mm-hmm. of that branch stemming from the Urbex of the 1920s, mm-hmm. you know, why why did that branch die out? Yeah. Cause that's something that I, I had this like fantasy while I was just chatting with, with his grandson. I almost could think of an alternate universe where this kid from Brooklyn watched some movies, did amazing physical feats that people didn't know were possible, went and did it live. People were fascinated and confused and then started a worldwide movement, Mm. not called parkour, but functionally parkour (laughs) in the 1940s and 50s. And it, to me, was a struggle to think, like, why, you know, what factors led John who was doing many of these same movement patterns what stopped him from starting parkour yeah. in 1942 and what gave the Yamakazi the ability the founders the ability to start parkour in the mid and late 1980s
0: yeah that's a very cool interesting question and I would love to speculate on it with you <laughs> I mean, yeah I, certainly we don't I don't mean I don't know for sure but um you know, one thing that jumps to mind is I wonder... I would want to talk to Alion Robert for sure mm-hmm. and see what he knows about John Sampa. Because I think... Or like any of these people that maybe also contributed to... You know, I don't know if the Yamakazi actually know about Alion either. But I imagine that they... Alion I'm just curious about his story because he seems to be actually a pivotal figure in this thread. And maybe, the you know, this vestigial um, branch is a little bit more robust than, than we're giving, we're giving credit, credit for, for right yeah. now. And, and I'm just curious, but it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Maybe there is a parallel universe where that is the case and <laughs> we can, you know, one day investigate it through.
1: I mean, awesome I think jumping, but, uh, <laughs> I think it takes us to uh, the reason I even bring it up is because I feel like this question is really important one for us now, right? Mm. That's the whole point of this podcast yeah. is like, what are we as practitioners in 2022 getting out of these stories about the development of our practice and the first thing i think that comes to mind with this one even before we we talk about why that died out potentially is you know what is the difference between stunts Mm. and parkour and for me personally and this might not be an opinion everybody shares i think the pivotal thing and this is part of what Maybe stopped John Ciampa from becoming a pioneer of this movement as well. Stunts and the entertainment industry movement is packaged as a product, mm. and it's kind of the same thing that we talked about in the Georges Bear episode, where the circus folk, when movement was kind of dying out all over the world, a lot of the knowledge was preserved in those like Middle Eastern and Southern and Eastern European circus communities. But people didn't see it as something to try. They saw it as entertainment. It was something to consume. Mm. And I think that there's this fundamental difference between stunts and parkour there where stunts are a thing to be performed for the sake of others. Mm -hmm. It's a thing for other people to consume. Mm. Parkour or any sport or discipline is something to be done for your own sake you know it's an an internally oriented practice in that sense that you're doing it uh to get something out of it for yourself or for a close group of friends
0: yeah that's an interesting um very interesting you know insight i think that yeah we've talked about how that there's also the dichotomy between the utility side of things versus like the aesthetic side of things and I think you're making the case and I think I would agree with you that if you had to put parkour on one side of the fence, it is a utility also born sport, or at least it was born out of like a, and I don't know what that really means utility because it, maybe it overlaps more with what you're saying, which is like, it's an internal inward journey. It's like a, it's something that is intrinsically valuable and not necessarily valuable because People are willing to pay for it, or you know, it's it's not just for the performance. There's there's something else there.
1: Yeah, if uh, if people stop watching parkour videos, I'm not going to start riding horses and making <laughs> spaghetti westerns, right? And yeah. that's I think the the difference that you're pointing out as well with that um, the utility sense, mm. right? It is it's uh, it's helpful for us and it's helpful for other people, not just because they can consume it, but because they can be inspired by it to make maybe make changes in their own life and this is really important still for a lot of parkour people who maybe want to get into the stunt industry i mean we've talked to a lot of people who've gone into stunts and realized excuse me we've talked to a lot of people who've gone into stunts and realized what i loved about movement isn't present in this community in the same way
0: yeah that is like that's interesting to notice yeah we see it all the time i mean even some of our very best it's it's so close The line is paper thin, it feels like, sometimes between these two things, stunts and parkour, because, you know, you look at someone like Pasha is a great example who, you know, we know emulates and has, you know, at least made references to Buster Keaton and Charlie Chapman and some of these, like, figures we just mentioned, and he's very obviously embedded in the entertainment side of things now, but the more embedded he is in that, the less relevant he feels to me. In the world, in the space of parkour, I mean, he's always going to be Pasha, so it's not like he really is ever less relevant, but you know what I mean, yeah. I think, and just, like, we we see people get, get drawn into the stunt industry, and it just doesn't feel... Like it's the same thing. Yeah. Pasha is
1: a great example of that.
0: And I think magicians are an interesting category that kind of like mirror that side of things. Like I think Houdini has done some crazy shit, you know, (laughs) that like almost borderlines on parkour sometimes. Not that, you know, I don't know that much about him, but I think magicians also fall into this stunt category when sometimes they're doing things. And there are sometimes, you know, like the secrets behind their tricks are just hard training or hard, like practice of doing things, which is so fascinating because it is sort of a discipline in that right. But it almost, it puts the value less on the skill and on what you do with it.
1: Yeah. And that's the entertainment aspect. And, and I think that coming back to, you know, why didn't parkour develop in the late 1940s? Well, historically obvious, the big obvious answer is world war two. Um, 1942 <laughs> not a good year if you want to you know start some <laughs> hey guys you want to go outside movement. and just jump around it's so like. <laughs> so part of it is right there's just this historic inevitability <laughs> like you're not gonna we saw it with george hubert world war one sidelined method natural for seven years essentially and we kind of get a similar thing here with john siampo where you have a lot of this momentum and it's suddenly being killed by world war Two, and people don't want to be confronted with these like life or death entertainment anymore. You know, they want something that's maybe feels a little bit less uh, realistic and a little bit more out there. So they suddenly go to the American West or these, you know, older more fantastic stories. Mm. Um, But I also think it comes down to the fact that what separated the founders of parkour, and this is such a pivotal thing from George Bear or from John Ciampa, is they were able to synthesize the philosophy side of it of the practice. They will, and the philosophy is what creates that foundation for other people to approach the thing you're doing. Mm. That's what keeps it from feeling like magic. Mm. You know, you're yeah. you're not Houdini. You're <laughs> revealing your trick to the audience, and you're saying, "Come on, like I want you to join in, mm. and I want you to push this thing with me," by creating. A community that's built around this idea, these shared concepts and shared values. And they were able to synthesize that with movement that was fascinating and intriguing and wanted it. The movement itself was cool enough to encourage people to try it Mm. because Georges Hubert, as amazing as Méthode Naturelle was on the philosophical side and the value side, it was exercise at the end of the day. Mm. And people enjoyed it but it was a much smaller niche it didn't have the wow factor john Ciampa had the wow factor but it was packaged as something that he did he was unique he was special mm. he was the magician and there was no way anybody else could approach it and if you're a kid who wants to emulate john Ciampa, where's the motivation to even try at that point <laughs> and that's where i think parkour ends up taking off and that was what was uh, so unique mm. about the kind of culmination of all of these factors.
0: Totally, yeah. You wonder if John Stamp, I think if his friends had maybe stuck with it with him, that yeah. would have been like the key ingredient because that changes everything when there's a community around it.
1: And we'll definitely see that and the <laughs> value of having a group to, mm. even if that group isn't training together, like we'll see with the founders of Parkour, right? If Even if the exchange of ideas isn't happening every day in person, having a group of people who are pushing in different directions, you're expanding not just, you know, you're not just like um, if you're starting out as a dot on a graph, when you have this group that's expanding in all these directions, you're going in every direction as a circle. You're not just a little triangle pointing off, (laughs) you know, on one axis and getting so far in that direction that nobody else can relate. Mm. And, And that's really part of the value of a group and, in our next episode really excited to talk about where these values of community and some of these values for developing a training approach and a methodology making parkour discipline and not just a form of entertainment mm. or something like a, a spectacle in the purest sense of the word that idea for discipline is digested by the founders many of them through not only Georges Hubert and his practice in the French military, but also through this medium of Eastern martial arts film and anime. And we're going to see that next episode when we talk a little bit about Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan and Goku. Who else?
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. And we'll see you on that episode. Make sure you check out everything in the description if you want to support this series and find links that we might
1: provide. <laughs> yeah, I'll learn more about John Ciampa. Huge thank you as well to his uh, grandson and his son for allowing me to pick their brains about his life. I really appreciated them sharing some information about uh, John Ciampa and his life and his story because what he did was amazing. And if you haven't gone to the Brooklyn Tarzan Facebook page to watch some of those old videos, it's really wild and you'll be happy that you did. <laughs>
0: All right. Paying tribute. Let us know what you think, and we will see you on the next episode. Thanks.